as a seed fund, we will always be small. And that's done with the intent of building towards product market fit. We talk a lot about product market fit in startup land. We don't really talk about it enough in, in venture land. It's really hard to deploy a billion dollars in capital if you're focusing on seed. So small intentionally is a feature, it's not a bug. And if we're doing our job right, we'll continue to raise the same fund size, relatively small speaking, and just be great at pattern recognition at seed pre-product market fit and staying really focused that way. To be the best in our niche is the way we think about it. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung and early stage investing has evolved in Southeast Asia and we see the emergence of companies within the different countries from Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam and Philippines. To help me to understand the early stage startup market, I have Tiang Lim Fu, co-founder and partner of Forge Ventures, to help me understand how things have changed over the past decade. Tiang, welcome to the show. Thanks. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Been a big fan of the show. Had many friends come on the show over the years. And I think my first appearance on the show was with Smitty, coming to four years ago. So That's right. And I thought since you have been on the show previously with Smitty and we didn't, a good place to really start today's conversation is to truly have you as a single guest and let you tell your origin story in proper. <laughs> so my first question to all my guests, how did you start your career? I love to ask founders what their origin stories are and it's nice sometimes to have the tables turn. But before I dive in, maybe just to set the record straight, I'm a Mr. Fu. Tang Lim is my first name. Really confusing. <laughs> I, yeah, but yeah, but my friends call me Tiang. I've always worked at the intersection of startups and venture and tech, had always been in Southeast Asia for the most part. To me, since young, I've always looked at this as the single biggest, most impactful way that I know how to create an impact in the world. So I graduated in the US as I went to Stanford University as part of the NUS Overseas College, the NOC program, and super grateful, incredibly lucky. If I can point to any single inflection point in my career, it really was embarking on that program. And there's something to be said about being at the right place at the right time. The year that I was at Silicon Valley is 2009, global financial crisis. But against that backdrop, a few tectonic shifts were happening in tech at that period. The iPhone 3G was launched, but alongside the iPhone 3G, the bigger deal in my opinion is the App Store, which changed the distribution model for software as we know it. The move from, it really catalyzed the move from social to mobile. And at the same time, the genesis of the Lean Startup movement was happening on the Stanford campus as well. I was really lucky to be taking a class taught by a gentleman called Steve Blank who uh, wrote the book called The uh, Four Steps to Epiphany. And one of his students, Eric Wies, was he literally wrote the book on the Lean Startup Movement. You know? And Eric Wies was invited by Steve as a guest lecturer on my, in my class. So get a lot really good exposure there. And that also coincided with the genesis of the micro VC movement in Silicon Valley. Because prior to that, seed VC wasn't even an asset class in Silicon Valley. One of the guest lecturers that I had at that time was a gentleman called Mike Maples Jr., who later on co-founded a firm called Floodgate. 
together with you know Anne Miracle. And I believe they met in my class, actually. It's quite interesting. So Anne was my TA at the time. So they, they met at my class, and then the rest is history. They funded Twitter, I believe, Lyft, and a few other big wins, and really proven out MicroVC as an asset class. So that was the backdrop. And at the same time, for some strange reason, my classmates and my cohort, they were really productive. So the founders of today household names like Carousel, Auto, Funding Societies, Experts, all these founders were my classmates from the shop back, right, from the same NOC program. For some strange reason, most of them were also my classmates in mechanical engineering by name because most of them didn't attend class. I think something there's a correlation between class attendance and entrepreneurship. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's fertile ground for startups, entrepreneurship, and that really inspired me to be part of that movement in, when I moved back to Singapore as well. So really started my career against that backdrop. When I came back to Singapore, graduated, joined a payments company. It's no longer around, but it's also started by an OC senior. I was the product manager for the company, did that for two years for various reasons. We can dive into you know those reasons later. Didn't do well. We had to return capital to investors. But as luck would have it, again, right place, right time, I got a call from a company called Evernote. Um, it's a productivity software from Silicon Valley. And I knew the founding team when I was in back in Stanford. In hindsight, it all kind of makes sense. But at that time, you don't really know. I think one of the greatest career lessons I took away from that was just to follow my curiosity. Downloaded the app, became a fanboy, drove over to the office and made friends and just knew the founding team. So fast forward a few years later, they raised Series A or B from Sequoia, started doing really well and wanted to expand to Asia. And that's why I got the call. So I started the office for Evernote here in Singapore, launched a business into the Asian time zone, was with the company for close to four years and really learned how to look at world-class you know, scaling, building a globally relevant SaaS product from the inside. Had a ton of fun, but unfortunately, the founding team left toward the end of 2015. I left toward the end of 2015, took a few months off trying to figure out what to do with my life. And again, right, right place, right time, got a call from Jungle Ventures. They were thinking about incubating a seed fund. So Amit from Jungle reached out, we chatted for a few months and I decided to jump on board and launch the Seed Plus fund with them in early 2016. We ended up raising 20 million, investing into Southeast Asia and we invested in about 19 to 20 companies and the rest was history and fast forward five six years later i'm still a vc it's still a really interesting journey and i'm loving it how did you make the decision in terms of shifting from an operator role into being an early stage investor i started making some angel investments at that time one of the first investments i made was in a company called x first i think they were the if not one of the first companies who got into Y Combinator, what, seven years ago by by now? Tian Wei, the, the founder who was recently on your podcast as well, I think, was a you know, cohort mate of mine at NOC. His brother, Tian Yao, was the CTO of my first payment startup. So again, right place, right time. And I, th- I saw through that experience that it taught me fundamentally how to look at value creation and having an impact on the world through a very different lens, right? As opposed to really jumping in and operating, here's something that I can influence with capital. 
and it's capital that could multiply in value, not not in the dollar and cents sense, but also the impact you can create through the injection of equity in a promising company. So I thought that was quite pretty interesting, and the VC ecosystem in Singapore was just being being catalyzed. NROF was incubating a bunch of VC firms. Today, some of them are household names like Jungle, Golden Gate. I believe um, Monks Hill started from the same vintage as well, or around the same vintage. So it's quite interesting. Not not often you get this window of opportunity to sit on the metaphorical other side of the table and still look at startups, tech, and entrepreneurship. So that was, that was the thought process there. Mm. So you already talked about following your curiosity being one of the career lessons of your life. Do you have other career lessons you can share with my audience? Yeah, I think many. <laughs> and I'm sure like as I reflect on some of these experiences in years to come, they continue to teach me new things. But if I can really sum it up, really, it's about building interesting things with smart and interesting people. And what I mean by that is that early in my career, you know, I was just really focusing on just work with interesting people on interesting projects. That's 10 odd years ago where most of my peers are either graduating into you know, investment banking or management consulting. Since I was an engineer, a large part of my peers are also going to oil and gas and semicon. The proverbial safe path and going to start felt really unsafe as a traditional career path. But the flip side there, it's, it's interesting. By definition, at that time, if you're working in startup or starting a company, you are an interesting individual. <laughs> now you chose to take the unconventional path. You chose to have an alternative career path. So, uh, But guess what? Interesting people will tend to work on interesting things. And you don't have to be the smartest individual in the room. But if you are spending time with interesting people and then you, you would be able to find some of the most and largest opportunities to be part of. And that continues to be some of my guiding principles, if you will, as I move along my career. So we come to the main subject of the day. That is about Forge Ventures and early stage investing in Southeast Asia. So very first question to ask you is, what's a typical day for a venture investor like you? <laughs> There's no typical day. You know, I, I mean, take today, for instance. I started the first meeting at 9 a.m. was a uh, due diligence call on a potential investment that I'm about to make in Vietnam. Hint, hint. And then 10 a.m. was a, a call with a, a existing portfolio company. And then 2 to 3, 3 to 4, again, like back-to-back calls with potential portfolio co- with uh, potential startup investments. And then 4 to 5 was like weekly partner meeting where we discuss operational issues in the firm. I'm currently in a recruiting cycle right now. So interviewing interns and and associates and analysts. So we're debating resumes and what we're looking for. And now I'm talking to you on a podcast, right? At (laughs) 9.30pm at night. So Yeah, I I think we can also be talking about deals just before the conversation to look at all the deals within the space itself. Exactly. One thing I'm pretty curious, after Seed Plus, you decided to set up Forge Ventures. What is the inspiration behind this new venture fund? Yeah, so maybe... The way I would like to describe this is there are two dimensions to this. The the why. I really like the way Simon Sinek, I think that's his last name, his philosophy around starting with why. So to me, it really is that why do I want to do this? Why commit myself to another 10-year illiquid, deep commitment, you know, fun life cycle? 
that's a really really big commitment for an individual to make so to really answer that question i think for me it really comes into dimensions is that the landscape and opportunity zones still exist right, in seed stage in southeast asia we did in my view, pretty good work at Seed Plus in that we were able to participate in some pretty good stories here in Southeast Asia. And the strategy that we ran was to focus at you know, Seed. Primarily what that means then is pre-product market fit companies. We lead the investment rounds. We'll get some level of involvement, whether it's a board of director's seat or a board observer's seat. But the intent there really is to work very closely with the founders to you know, get from zero to one. And that reflected in portfolio construction as well. Highly uh, concentrated portfolio construction, 15 to 20 companies. And if you fast forward to when we started Forge Ventures last year, the gap in that opportunity zone still exists. So from a strategic point of view, I think it still makes sense. And there's still no opportunity for a firm to really create a category of a institutional seed investor on record that lead rounds and that's what we aspire to do the other dimension here it's the probably more personal is is cultural is the why my role models here are benchmark in in silicon valley first round capital in the u.s when i think about starting a new venture firm it's both looking at it as an investment opportunity but also an opportunity to really build a company and that's the dual identity that a lot of the founding partners or managing partners of uh, funds and firms they wear. And my aspiration here then from that perspective is really to create a environment where the best investors are able to thrive with minimal to no politics, hopefully constructive politics, and just focus on being the best investor you can be. And that's what Benchmark had really achieved over the years, right? And frankly, it's an inspiration for us. And, and that's how we look at it. What do you think is the current vision and mission for the fund itself? Yeah, so our vision here is to be the seed investor on record, as I mentioned, for category-defining companies that are emerging from Southeast Asia. The firm building element here is that, just to reiterate, we want to create an environment where the best investors will thrive. It's a lean team, a true partnership. I mean, maybe one example I can pull from here is like a jazz band instead of mm. a, 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 an ensemble or a rock band. A jazz band where each individual players are strong by themselves. They can stand on their own, experts in their own instrument. But when they come together, you continue to build each other up, challenge each other, and the output is amazing. And imagine if you're able to practice that craft, um, hone that pattern recognition over a long period of time. That compounding effect of intellectual capital is something that we want to create here. So in this jazz band you have, who else is in Forge Ventures other than yourself? How did you come together to build this fund? My co-founder is, uh, is a gentleman called Casper, Casper Hidayat. In fact, I think he's actually a more experienced VC than I am. Um, started with uh, 500 startups, Fund One in Southeast Asia back in the day with Kylie. And subsequently went to a fund called Ventura, which was a Lipo Group sponsored corporate VC. In between, he had operating stints at a, at a D2C brand called Pomelo where he briefly served as, as their first country manager in Indonesia and also head of marketing. So 
really again right right place right time you 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 hear me use that phrase a lot we happened to coincide in our career journeys and started just chatting about the potential of working together in i would say toward the end of late 2020 discovered that a lot of our values and principles do align we want to stay focused see it is where the opportunity and action is and it's also a lot about alignment so thankfully we found an anchor lp that's aligned with our strategy values and principle and are able to come brought down on board Super lucky in that way. So officially launched Forge Ventures in April 2021 and did our first close of the fund in September last year of uh, 22 million. Now I can talk about fundraising and you know, my, su- my surprise here, but in short, um, super surprised that we're able to just close the fund in, in four months with an above expectation fund size as well. So do you have a investment thesis specific for the fund itself? Or maybe the other question I'm most going to follow up with is what are the verticals that you typically invest in? We don't really, we're sector agnostic by design. Between Casper and I, we brought different experiences, both operating and investing to the table. And our belief here is that because it's such an early stage where categories are not yet defined, it's really hard then to be focus on a specific category or sector. So flipping it on its head then, we'll rather really good founders tell us where the biggest opportunities lie. So definitely founder focus in the way we think about opportunities, hence sector agnostic. That being said, my background, as I've mentioned you know, earlier, is mostly what is operating on investing is mostly from a B2B lens, looking at fintech, payments, SaaS products, marketplaces, that's really, you know, product-led. And that continues to be something that I'm drawn to. And it's a helpful, also, I guess, uh, framework to look at and digest new technologies and business models as well. What are the traits of founders or patterns in startup teams that you index that you're likely to make the investment? I mean, you have been in a cohort where your cohorts have all produced enormous interesting startups over the past 10 years from Exfer, Carousel, Shopback. Yeah. So maybe you can talk about. Yeah. And sometimes I like to play fantasy baseball, right? You know, had I been an angel investor in all the means that you mentioned, I would I would probably be doing very, very different things today. <laughs> but I didn't. So life goes on. But in short, I think the traits of founders, I want to invest in smart driven. And I think people don't talk about this enough, authentic founders. I think authenticity is actually a really important characteristic. How do I define define authentic? Authenticity is really about your ability to not just communicate your ideas, but also your willingness to communicate your vulnerability in front of a stranger. And one thing I noticed is that some of the best founders I work with are especially great at doing that because this gives them an ability to build trust really really quickly with a potentially 30 minute 60 minute interview with a vc it could be also the way you know you you will also impact the way you recruit where you have early believers coming with you in your along your company building journey early customers as well right just sticking their neck out to to buy your product i think that's a really important element that we we you know plays a really important weightage on 
the other thing here is, do you know the concept of the idea maze? Where, yeah, so maybe let me briefly explain, right? So idea maze basically illustrates this concept of when you start when you start formulating a potential product or business idea, how much dead ends have you chased down to produce a viable potential scenario or path forward? before even writing maybe your first line of code or or buying your first Google ad. Or maybe you do that, but it's with the intent of making sure that before you step out in your commitment, you're really chasing down a, the most likely scenario to success, the critical path to success. And again, like most of the best founders I've worked with in my career, they already have this idea maze drawn out in their head even before raising the first round of funding really clear insight. They're able to communicate that idea with clarity. They're able to admit what they don't know, what they don't know, but they, they, they're able to draw that Johari window of awareness and, and making sure that they would have a strategy towards reducing you know, what they don't know, right? The quadrant of what they don't know. And that's a very rare quality. And if we can marry like that discipline, intellectual rigor and authenticity, those are the founders that I really, really would love to back. So what are the red flags then you watch out for then? The, well, almost the flip side of the same coin, lack of clarity in thought, which, and sometimes lack of clarity in communication, which betrays the lack of clarity in thought. It impacts the ability to, for the founder to recruit, to sell the vision to stakeholders, to recruit customers, right? It's also symptomatic of maybe the lack of strategic thinking or you're just, you just haven't thought about something deeply or hard enough. Yeah. So from the creation of the fund till now, what are the examples of companies which you have invested so far? We've made five investments so far, going on six, going on seven. Most of them are here in Singapore. We have a company in Vietnam as well as in Indonesia. And just to give you an idea, the spectrum at play here, we've invested in education, consumer tech, online groceries, to SaaS products. Some of the names are here would be Marathon Education, for instance, in Vietnam. We met Duke when he was still a analyst at TPG, actually covering education and committed to back him the moment he left the company. So we go that early. And just a few weeks ago, he graduated from you know, Y Combinator. He was pitching at a demo day and now closing a YC demo day round. So that's that's Marathon here. They're working on an online tutoring platform similar to what we saw at, in uh, Ren Fu Tao in China. So they're trying to replicate the model for the Vietnamese. Another company would be DropEasy in Indonesia. It's a quick commerce, dark source quick commerce under 15 minute delivery model in Jakarta. Let the last seat round. And again, the company was is in the current YC cohort and now they're just growing, right? Really, really exciting company in, in Jakarta. So I'm going to come to the most difficult question, which is thinking about valuation. I think the way I'm going to ask you the question is it varies across how different people think about it. I have a different model now when thinking about Web3. So what is your mental model about thinking about the valuation of startups in Southeast Asia as a region? So maybe I want to go higher resolution than that, which is I think valuation is a it's more of an art the earlier you go. And the later you go is more, I guess, scientific and methodical in some sense. At the stage we invest in pre-product market fit, as I alluded to before, in, in Marathon's case, it's as early as 
还是那份 life is job, right? So meaningless to really do financial duty. Looking at P and L statements is mostly L no P anyway. So <laughs> for us, then it's really a a tension and interaction between three variables. First of all, it's driven by our ownership goals and targets to make the portfolio construction work. And since the portfolio concentration is relatively high. We aim to be a meaningful minority in the companies that we we work with, and that means let's say ten to fifteen percent from the get go would be the target here, and of course it's a spectrum. The second variable would be is based on the, our conviction in the opportunity size, because if you really take a long hard look at the VC business model, value creation is between your entry and your exit. And the higher your entry valuation, the larger the opportunity size needs to be. So building our conviction around at terminal value five, ten years from now, what would the company look like? It's a huge part of the work that we do here. And the third piece here would be competition for the investment deal, right? The supply and demand of capital, what I call, right? If a if a particular team is highly credible, working in a very hot sector, in inevitably supply and demand would dictate that valuation goes up, and and the truth is between these three, you know, variables. So, so given the scene has changed so much in the last decade, has the early stage model evolved as well? I think earlier you kind of alluded to the fact, even moving from C plus and then to Forge. You still find that there's this gap in the early stage itself, and the other interesting phenomenon I thought I should probably point out here is: Do you see more and more early pre-seed stage startup companies are likely to spring up from their home countries with their own seed funds now, and then subsequently go to a seed stage funds for funding like yourself? Because Singapore is probably the venture capital base for the entire Southeast Asia at the moment. Yeah, I think that's it's a great observation. We're definitely seeing this being a very dynamic landscape. What surprised me was how quickly things had moved as well, especially in the pandemic. Now we're emerging out of pandemic, but I remember when April twenty twenty came around, signals and noise. Well, more noise than signals, right? Everywhere. But to my surprise, you no, know, took a brief dip, but it picked up really, really rapidly again. And through that, through the Pandemic valuations and round sizes just grew exponentially, almost exponentially. And I've also noticed that there's a lot more capital at play across the entire.、Um, but I do want to qualify that a little bit, which is you no know, at, at at least in our stage we do see a lot more seed capital. The sources of this capital could be angels. Right, there are a lot more angels who are liquid, and most of them come from a. Technology background, and they're interested to start being angel investors, which is a net good thing, I think, for the ecosystem. We're also seeing more and more accelerators, incubators like Antler EF, right, raising new dry powder to double triple in the region, maybe even across the globe. We're new new entrants like Iterative, which I'm a big fan of. Shout out to. Brian Shuken, I guess, really liked the way that they brought product discipline, growth discipline thinking to the region as well. So the the ecosystem is evolving, and for the better, I think. Higher quality capital across the stack, and you know that attracts more sophisticated entrepreneurs, and it's a virtuous cycle. Is it possible to now even think of startups diving deeper within the country itself rather than thinking about the region as a whole? I'm asking this because. When I look at a Vietnam 
startup. The chances of it diving deep within Vietnam by itself is actually a relatively big market opportunity. I can say the same for Philippines. I can say the same for Thailand and I can same, say the same for Indonesia. And Indonesia is almost one third the size of China. Yep. If, you, if you take population, would you think that the next wave of startups will be more diving deeper within those countries itself? And its capacity of actually going out of that country is actually less important as compared to a Singapore startup that needs to go regional almost from day one. I, I actually think about this in a slightly different way. It's first principles thinking. If a founder comes to me and say, hey, we're working on this idea, this interesting product for this market, at the end of the day, one has to ask oneself just how big is this opportunity size? How deep is the market segment? And if it's not deep enough as a market segment in a particular country, Vietnam or Thailand or insert any other name here, how do you then address a larger TAM or create a larger TAM? In some sense, it's interesting because being here in Singapore, the flavor of companies that we look at are, they tend to be more regional and global. The Singapore market is a good proxy for you know, developed markets in Asia to a pretty large extent. One of the companies that we invest in is a company called Vouch. It's a B2B SaaS tool for businesses in the hospitality industry. And they build for hotels, right? So they work with brands like Grand Hyatt, Pan Pacific, Frasers, when we invested in a company last year, they are already in Singapore, Indonesia, Korea, you know, Australia, just launched in the UK, right? Very rare to see companies going that quick, you know, that early in their life cycle, but they were doing it. And the reason is because the their customer in Singapore looks just like their customer in Hong Kong, looks just like their customer in Australia. So you think about markets then, the market that they're addressing is uh, effectively beyond Singaporean shores. But Contrast that to like maybe a company called Koala is a company that I, I, I made the first investment in out of the C plus fund. It's an intratech company headquartered in Jakarta. And the initial investment thesis here was to build embedded insurance for emerging markets. This was what, coming to four years ago. And if you look at that, then Indonesia, large population, there's always a, a correlation between GDP growth and, and consumption of insurance. But Fast forward four years later, we, we realized that a large part of the growth in the business still relies on education of the general populace of what insurance means. So how do we continue to grow the TAM? So we keep adding different product lines, different models. So now Koala has a really meaningful Asian network that's D2C on top of the embedded insurance piece, which is working with the you know, Tokopedias of the world to sell embedded insurance. They're also now in Thailand. They've acquired a company in Thailand to sell motor vehicle insurance directly. And Malaysia, right, is a business that's fast growing for them. So again, like look alike in terms of the market segment in these other emerging markets. But I, I want to be higher resolution than that, which is it really depends on your addressable market segment. If you have a magic wand, what else is currently lacking within the Southeast Asia entrepreneurship ecosystem that you wish that can be solved? <laughs> could be regulation, could be common market. What's the wish list? Yeah, I think common market is, I mean, if you are talking about wish list, yeah, sure, I hope that it happens, right? Just like what's going on in, in Euro, even though that's like 
maybe disintegrating a little bit. But more immediately, and I think this could be a, a lower hanging fruit, it's uh, you know, providing meaning, more meaningful path to liquidity, whether it's secondary, primary IPOs. I think markets like SGX, IDX had a real shot in developing a regionalized tech IPO. GoTo's done mostly well, I think, right, in IDX. I'm super excited to see what the Vertex spec would entail. And I hope that it's, it's, it's uh, successful. Because if it's successful, it's great for the ecosystem in, in, in general. I, I think it would be interesting to think about the spec market because it's somehow it's becoming the exit ramp. But one thing seems to have changed is that all the Indonesian tech unicorns are trying to IPO within their own stock exchange. I think there seems to be an awareness that maybe people in the US, if they were to do it in New York Stock Exchange, it's going to be tough for them to grow. As you also have seen in some of the companies that IPO in the US. Yes. Or spec through US as well. Yes. I think, but something's changed, I think, right, in, in Southeast Asia, which is, you know, the past five years, there's a lot more awareness of tech in the general populace. Tech is a viable career choice. Starting out is a viable career choice in Singapore and Indonesia. Folks are more educated about you know, tech and its impact. And retail investors are more and more excited about participating in the tech story in Southeast Asia. So I think that's a real shot in us, you know, creating a viable path towards this. Let's see how that plays out. But the fundamental doesn't go away, right? We still have to build great companies. We still have to back great founders. And hopefully in time to come, that changes the game for everyone. So I thought about our earlier conversation just before the podcast where we started talking about companies in the Web3 space. I guess your fund has been focused a lot on the Web2 world. How do you look at the current Web3 phenomena that's springing up in the region? I'm really excited. And one of the reasons why I'm really excited is because, you know, it feels like for the first time in a long time, Singapore and at least Singapore, in North Southeast Asia, is able to participate in a global conversation, right? When it comes to a shift in technology. I mean, think about it, right? When the internet happened, could we? Not really. When the move from web to mobile happened, could we? Not really, right? And then there's a wave of AI, ML, what have you. But for Web3 and crypto, feels that way, right? That we're able to engage, participate, and even create from this time zone. So I'm super excited because of, of that relevance in the global conversation. And that's evidenced by the flow of capital, obviously, coming into the Singapore environment. But more important that, than that is the flow of human capital into that's participating Web3 and crypto, right? Now, some of our common friends, you and I, John Russell, you know, is over at crypto.com right now. Gwen over at Binance, right? Andrew Ranjas, who moved from AWS to uh, Blood Blood Damon. Damon. That's right. So and we are now a group of all angel investors into Web3. <laughs> no, exact, exactly, exactly. So when human capital and capital meet, you know something's going to happen, right? Some interesting thing's going to happen. So I'm really excited. But don't you find it ironic as well? Like the best Web3 companies from the region, I'm talking about the likes of Sky Mavis, the YGG, CoinGecko, CoinHako, Web3, Oft, some of these new ones, or Nansen, they're all funded by global VCs like Anderson Horowitz, and yet none of the local VCs touched it. I am trying to lead by example. So <laughs> <laughs> if you have uh, interesting opportunities to send my way, or if your listeners have any interesting opportunities to send my way, I'm all ears. 
I'm pretty sure, Tiang, you're already right ahead of the game. Right. But we will talk more later. Yeah. So my final question to you is, what does great look like for Forge Ventures? I thought long and hard about this. And to me, a few key words emerge, which is focus, um, consistency. What does this mean? So this means that if we do our job right, we will continue to remain small. What that means then is that relative to venture funds, growth stage funds, as a seed fund, we will always be small. And that's done with the intent of building towards product market fit. We talk a lot about product market fit in startup land. We don't really talk about it enough in, in venture land. It's really hard to deploy a billion dollars in capital if you're focusing on seed. So we, are, we want to remain small intentionally. It's a feature, it's not a bug. And if we're doing our job right, we'll continue to raise the same fund size, relatively small speaking, and just be great at pattern recognition at seed, pre-product market fit, and staying really focused that way. To be the best in our niche is the way we think about it. Tiang, many thanks for coming on the show, but we will continue to talk. You probably will get back at some point. So in closing, I have two last questions. Uh, the first is, any recommendations that have inspired you recently? I was, I was scrolling through my Goodreads and Kindle, and I realized that if I, if I were to be honest, there are very few books that really change the trajectory of your life. There's this book I'm a big fan of, Clayton Christensen. He he wrote The Innovator's Dilemma. And this other book that he wrote is called How, How Will You Measure Your Life? I was really fortunate to be able to pick it up right when I was graduating, just as well, because the whole, the whole idea of the book is to talk about how do you make the right decisions with the right strategies so that you could measure your life at the end of the day and you've made, you've lived a good life. Three... If you allow me, I think you know I can I can expand on on this a little. The there, there are three main points here which I've applied, you no, know, not just in my life but also the work I do in operating and investing. The first uh, framework that I use is this thing called jobs to be done. Broadly speaking, you know how do you look at you know the products and services that you use in your life and what's the job that they do right in your life. Applying that to to a personal life, it's. How, what's my job to be done in the eyes of my you know, parents, for instance, in the eyes of my, my, my wife, in the eyes of my son? So really, really, really try to like, you know, think through that in a, in a deep way uh, has been a really good guiding principle. The second one is this mental model of the difference between a dominant and emerging strategy where you always have a strategy towards achieving something, a goal, right? But you always leave room for serendipity and that's where emerging strategy could happen and if it's meaningful enough it could be your next dominant strategy and this taught me about serendipity just trying to put myself in a place where i can get lucky sometimes and vc a lot of it sometimes it's just about luck so then the last piece here is that is resource allocation how do you locate time energy and tension and making sure that you're allocating with it with a view of a long-term payback instead of a short-term payback right whether that's spending time with kids family friends your work right uh, the short-term versus long-term trade-off that's always been something that i think about quite often how will you measure your life by clayton christensen really good book i read it every year and it's been a phenomenal read so how can my audience find you i'm on linkedin twitter and like like the kids call it omni channel i suppose <laughs> 
Uh, I'm on Twitter as at Tianglin, T-I-A-N-G-L-I-M. My email is at tiang at forge.vc. If you have any um, good Web3 companies, feel free to tweet at me or send it my way. There's a call to action here. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah, you can also send that to me too. Yeah. So the podcast definitely found on any podcast platform. Please leave us a five-star rating for iTunes and leave us a review that will allow people to discover us more. Tweet to us at Analyze Asia and once again, thank many thanks for coming on the show and share your experiences and I look forward to speak to you soon. It's been an honor. Thanks for having me. Run it, run it, run it.